Hi, it's Hal Anderson. Thanks for checking out the daily podcast for my show, Connecting Winnipeg. And if you can, please listen live weekdays from 10 to noon on 680 CJOB. Good morning. Deadlines for workers with the Manitoba government and the city of Winnipeg to get fully vaccinated against COVID-19 are quickly approaching. Provincial workers need proof by the end of October. City employees have until November 15th to get both doses. For those who are not vaccinated, the city says exemptions will be made on a case-by-case basis. Let's talk now with Global News reporter Skylar Peters, who's on this story, Vaccine Uptake. Skylar, good morning. Good morning to you, Hal. What can you tell us? Well, we've reached out to uh, a baker's dozen of divisions now, and a lot of them are still either compiling data because this deadline's uh, obviously quickly approaching, uh, or they have gotten back to us. So four have gotten back, uh, three in Winnipeg, and then the Red River Valley School Division, uh, which is south of the city, uh, kind of around that Morris area. So far out of the four, they are the lowest, with uh, 89% of employees uh, reporting as fully vaccinated. All the Winnipeg divisions, though, are uh, really sporting impressive numbers. Uh, Louis Riel School Division, 96.5%. Uh, Seven Oaks, you heard from uh, Superintendent Brian O'Leary there in the news, 98%, just 35 out of 1,500 say they won't be vaccinated by Halloween. And in uh, Pemina Trails, just 40 out of 1,900, which is uh, also a 98% clip. These are good numbers. I mean, you know, they should be good numbers, right? These are teachers. These are the people that are in classrooms with our kids. And and so, uh, but I'm happy to hear that the numbers are, are pretty strong. But there are still some, for example, as you pointed out in, in Seven Oaks, just 35 people that are vaccine hesitant. And so now what happens with them? They get tested? Yeah, so that might differ from uh, division to division on how exactly it's carried out, but they do have to undergo rapid testing three times a week. Uh, when we spoke to Brian O'Leary earlier today, and you might have heard him on the start, he uh, kind of laid out their plan. So they'll do one on Sunday. That's done at home, obviously. Uh, one on Tuesday and one on Thursday. Now, either uh, one of those Tuesday or Thursday ones, the weekday ones, have to be performed at the school with a nurse supervising. Uh, I know a lot of people are probably asking, well, who's paying for it? Well, the school division is paying for the nurse to supervise and the province is paying for those tests, at least for right now. I mean, it's it's coming out of the same pocket at the end of the day, essentially. But uh, in terms of who's footing the bill right then, uh, those are the two kind of sides to that. So, uh, yeah, one of those tests does have to be uh, a supervised test. I believe that's the provincial rule. Um, so whether they carry it out or not, uh, you know, on the same day, that might be up to uh, each division. But O'Leary said, essentially, uh, you need to have a test result that was given to you uh, 48 hours ago or fewer if you want to teach kids. And obviously that test result has to be negative. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, later on in the show, uh, let me just check what time I have him on. Um, he's coming up at 11.15, Romeo Ignacio, the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union. So we'll see where Winnipeg Transit drivers are at. I did reach out to Mo Sabrin at the police union, haven't heard back from Mo, and obviously there's lots of of different groups of employees affected here, and we'll just sort of see how it goes, but so far, the school numbers are are good, and I think impressive, and we're always going to have some people that are just not going to want to get vaccinated. They're going to be vaccine hesitant. You, You follow the numbers really closely, Skylar, and you brought up a really good point in a in a meeting that I was in as well. You know, we're seeing first doses slow down, 
And um, it, it's because it, it's it's difficult to follow the numbers because some people are now getting third doses, right? Yeah, well, and I'm kind of hoping the province clarifies this data. All of this is uh, available online uh, on the government of Manitoba website. Um, and there's a chart there that shows daily cumulative doses, first and second. Well, now there's quite a few people that are eligible for their third. So I hope this uh, data gets clarified, you know, maybe in the next week or so, now that the third doses are fairly widespread. Um, because, you know, yeah, we reported 30, I think 3,080 vaccinations yesterday. Uh, how many of them were first doses? It looks right. like uh, around 500, just approximately by looking at the graph here. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it could be a little misleading. And, and you know, just two, three weeks ago before this third dose uh, rollout was a little more widespread. Uh, and I think partially because of uh, how Manitoba's rules were looking and, and the, the widespread use of the vaccine passport, uh, the, the first dose uptake was actually really good. Uh, and it's it's slowed quite a bit considerably since then, but uh, you know still a steady trickle. And I think uh, you know at this point where you know the people that are eligible have been eligible for a long time. Uh, it's you know what we've talked about a lot. It's those interpersonal conversations. Um, Brit, the the fellow that Brittany Greenslade, our uh, Global News colleague, interviewed last week, um, you know had a heart to heart with uh, some family members. Uh, it's that kind of stuff that's going to result mm-hmm. in those first doses. Uh, a lot harder than uh, you know getting your appointment time and showing up at the RBC Convention Center super site like a lot of uh, people did in the spring and early summer. Right, definitely uh, getting harder though. Uh, uh, the, I think the people that are left that are uh, you know describing themselves as vaccine hesitant are are maybe almost beyond hesitant we'll see i mean we have to be optimistic about this Skyler, thanks a lot appreciate your time hey thanks Al. right now sean jeffrey the executive director of the manitoba restaurant and food services association sean good morning morning congratulations on the new time slot thank you really appreciate that sean how are restaurants doing? I've been out uh, to a few over the past week or, or 10 days, and they've all been really busy. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it seemed to be going in the right direction, that's for sure. And multiple conversations with operators, we're, uh, we're getting back to uh, levels where we saw pre-pandemic, which is 2019. So that's nice to see. Um, it's, uh, it's recent, and obviously it doesn't... Uh, um, you know, factor in the fact that we've gone through 16 to 18 months here of, uh, of COVID uh, chaos, but we're getting back to some sort of normal and uh, it's definitely moving in the right direction, especially over the last weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the sad part here, Sean, is, and it's part of the story, you can't drive down any street in Winnipeg without seeing one or two places that used to be a bustling restaurant uh, that's, uh, you know, got paper on the windows now. And and, and that is really mm-hmm. unfortunate, really sad. It, it breaks my heart because I do have a soft spot, as you know, uh, for restaurants and the people that work in them. Yeah. Uh, you know, closures have been a reality across Canada, not just here in Manitoba, and uh, especially in the downtown area uh, where, you know, we've lost a, a large portion of our, our regular business, especially during the lunch business, where those restaurants in that downtown area really thrive on those downtown uh, offices to be full. And they're not, and they're still not, and we don't know when they will be. So those decisions for those restaurants to, you know, to either manipulate their hours or close totally, um, they had to be made because, unfortunately, the, the long-term um, look for a lot of these businesses is not sending back employees downtown anytime soon, and that's just obviously such a integral part of our business in that area. 
We'll get to details of a new program that you're going to tell us about here first on CJOB for for restaurant owners out there and and restaurants and and the people that work in them. So stand by for that. Yesterday I had Chuck Davidson on from the Manitoba Chambers of Commerce. We were talking about some of these government programs, government supports that are coming to an end. I'm sure you'd like to see them extended too, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. And and the reason for that is is this, is that, you know, some of these programs, although they really were a lifeline for the restaurant industry, especially here in Manitoba and across Canada, um, we are only starting to recover now. So a lot of businesses that uh, remained open in other industries were open far before we were and were closed later than we were. So our recovery is going to take the longest. It's a well-known fact that the restaurant industry and the hospitality industry in Canada is going to be the longest recovery time of any industry out there. So uh, we need uh, further support to just get out of the red and get back in the black. Um, We're so far in the red right now that it's going to take months, if not years. They're saying an average of five to eight years to get a restaurant back to pre-pandemic profit and operating levels. So um, we really need those supports to continue on so we can kind of try to recoup some of those massive losses and kind of stay afloat as we get back to whatever this new normal looks like. Mm-hmm. What's the new program you want to tell us about? Yeah, we just initiated a, a new grant for the restaurant industry here in Manitoba called the Restaurant Marketing and Recovery Grant. It's uh, up to a $2,500 grant for restaurants to do one of two things. Uh, one is to market their business uh, out to their customers, uh, especially coming into the holiday season, whether it be Christmas parties or take-and-bake options or holiday dinner options and, and get that out to their customers and be able to utilize that. And uh, the second thing would be to hire. Um, our hiring challenges in the restaurant industry, especially here in Manitoba, have been horrendous coming out of COVID. And we are really struggling for getting staff back into our restaurants, especially going into our holiday season, which is actually one of our busiest seasons uh, during the year. So this, uh, this grant can be used to uh, try to support some of those costs, whether it be using uh, online platforms to hire people, whether it be using uh, different uh, marketing models, uh, whether it be social media or media or advertising on great radio stations like CGOB or putting yourself in a magazine just to talk about your business, just to get yourself back out there after 18 months of being, uh, you know, severely restricted. So uh, that grant's uh, available through our website at www.mrfa.mb.ca and it's right on our front page and it's open to all restaurants in Manitoba. And that staffing uh, shortage that the restaurant, especially restaurants, are dealing with right now, that is real, man. Like, I, I've heard of some oh, restaurants that are, are not having a lunch because they don't have people nope. to staff the lunch. You know, I, I go to the same restaurant before every bomber game, and every week I've been to three bomber games now, and every single time that poor manager is standing at the front of the restaurant saying, I am so sorry to start off with that your food is going to take an hour between 45 minutes and an hour. And, you know, we're all just prepared to deal with that, and that's, you know, what we're having to deal with. But it's just so sad considering we're just trying to recover after all this uh, this massive uh, detriment that we've faced in the last almost two years. And to, to now face this, it's something. But we're really working towards it with our new uh, hiring initiative that's out. We're starting to see more and more traction towards that in more and more applications coming into restaurants. And we're hoping that uh, Manitobans can step up. And if you're looking for a part-time job, full-time job, new career, please go to our website uh, at the Restaurant Association. We have a job bank with about 60 different restaurants that are looking for people. Sean, thanks for the update. Appreciate it. Pleasure as always. Take care, all. Thanks. Sean Jeffrey is the Executive Director of the Manitoba Restaurant Association. Well, as you know, I'm an animal lover, and um, we're going to have a a story, an animal story, coming up here with our 
uh, one of our Global News Online journalists, Sam Thompson, in about uh, uh, 10 or 12 minutes. It will put a smile on your face. Uh, it's a great animal story. Unfortunately, joining us now with a heartbreaking animal story is Jessica Miller, the CEO of the Winnipeg Humane Society. Jessica, good morning. Hi, Hal. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Oh, my heart broke as I read the details uh, of this story. Please tell everybody, um, and, and we'll get to why we're talking about this, but tell us this heartbreaking story. There's no other word for it. No, it was really heartbreaking and really hard for the staff to go through. Um, but recently, our investigations and emergency response team, in partnership with the province, um, received a warrant and we seized 24 small breed dogs um, from a very sad situation. Um, it was a urine, there was urine and feces everywhere. The dogs were so matted they couldn't even move their legs. Um, lots of secondary skin conditions from urine scalding on the skin. Um, and so all of these animals were brought into the Winnipeg Humane Society and um, we were able to recover all of them, bring them right back to where they needed to be. Um, so although it started in a very sad state, um, and we do see this very, very often, and it seems to be more and more every day, um, at least these animals will see, um, you know, the light on the other side. Well, and you took in two dozen dogs, 24, but now you've actually got 28 because one of the dogs gave birth in your care. Uh, that's right. One day I was walking through the back and there was four more little babes. They were so adorable. Um, yeah, one of the moms decided that it was time. And so we went from 24 to 28 very, very quickly overnight. This is, and, and this is, as you said, this happens more often than people might think. You know, it does, and it's actually shocking. You know, last year alone, we had almost 3,000 animal welfare calls. Um, we're averaging about 50 animals a month being brought in from our animal protection officers, and those are when we don't have a mass seizure, seizure situation. Sometimes, um, you know, just in the last few months, I saw one where 70 animals were brought in all at once. And, you know, it stems from social, in, uh, social issues, mental health issues, um, people struggling with their finances through COVID. You know, <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes people just don't know how to ask for help. Um, and so it ends up being investigated in this way. Um, and it's unfortunate that it continues to become a big problem for us. You know, we already raise uh, an annual operating budget of between seven and eight million. And um, that just scratches the surface of the work that we do, not including these large, large mass situations that are just continuing to grow on the daily. You mentioned some of the issues at the heart of this, uh, including COVID. Has this gotten worse, this sort of thing gotten worse uh, over the past year and a half or so? Yeah, um, our investigations team has stated, you know, monthly when we start to look at our reports that these animal welfare calls are just going up and up. There's increases. Um, we have seen a bit of an adoption surge over the summer since people have been home. Um, but we're also seeing a lot of calls. And so it's hard to determine exactly where it's coming from. Um, we do have resources to help people, you know, if they have been struggling through COVID and they're not able to pay a vet bill or, you know, they have an extraordinary case, medical case, that's you know, going to cost them $500 they didn't have or they don't have food to feed their animal. We have programs for that. 
um, and we can move forward with that. Uh, so if someone is in a situation where they're um, having their animal reproduce constantly and they don't know how to stop it or to ask for help, that's when you can call us and we can get in there before it's a massive problem that is hard to deal with. So let's talk about the money here. Uh, you raise the you, you mentioned the amount of money you raise every year, and, and every every dime gets spent. I know it does. And then you have situations like this, and you're seeing more situations like this that dogs need to be cared for, get them back to good health. You've got to feed them. Um, this is expensive, and and this is uh, while it's heartbreaking and horrible that this has happened. It's an opportunity now for us to talk about this and get animal lovers out there to help. It absolutely is. You know, this case alone, we're looking at costing us about $25,000. You know, a lot of these animals that are in mass seizure situations and are are not cared for have dental problems. They're not being fed properly. They're not going to the vet. A a dental alone can cost between $500 and $700. So we're looking to cost recover, you know, the $25,000 here. But this is just for this case alone. We know that there's going to be another. We're doing everything that we can to get them before they're large and and extensive. Um, You know, but just our clinic and hospital care alone is getting to about $1.5 million. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of costs that we incur, and it takes a large staff to do what we do. You know, we care for about 10,000 animals every single year. And if people want to help out, a website's the best place to go, WinnipegHumaneSociety.ca? Absolutely. If you can go to our website, you know, whether you have a little or a lot, we are so appreciative of of every single dollar that comes in. So you can go to the website, make a donation. Um, That's the easiest way to do it, and we would be so appreciative. And you're looking for people to foster dogs, right, and and obviously uh, make a home for for these dogs at some point. And and, and, uh, what about food? Do you also take dog and cat food donations? We do. We take all kinds of donations, and everything that we don't use, we donate as well. And so you're welcome to come down to the shelter and give a donation, a physical donation, if you like. Um, We're always growing our foster program. Um, we find that the longer an animal is in shelter, they decrease um, just in both their physical state and their mental state. And so we look to uh, foster animals that need medical care before we can actually adopt them. If they have behavioral issues from something that they've gone through, um, they will stay in foster until they're in an adoptable state. So we're always growing that program. And so if you'd like to sign up to be a foster parent or a volunteer, you can also do that online. And it's a huge help to helping us care for animals beyond our shelter which is important because there's only so much room Mm -hmm. jessica good luck with these dogs and and keep doing the great work that you do at the humane society thank you thank you so much jessica miller is the ceo of the winnipeg humane society again the website is winnipeghumanesociety.ca winnipeghumanesociety.ca or as uh, she said if you want to drop off something at the humane society the address is 45 Hurst Way in Winnipeg, 45 Hurst Way, 28 dogs in a mass seizure, and they're dealing with them, uh, bringing them back to good health, feeding them, caring for them at the Winnipeg Humane Society. Now, as heartbreaking as that is, we're going to come back after we check the weather here, 1041, with Hal Anderson on CJOB, and when we come back, one of our global news online journalists will join us, Sam Thompson with a great animal story. I love this animal story.
1047, the cat came back. Now old Mr. Johnson had troubles of his own. He had a yellow cat who wouldn't leave his home. He tried and he tried to give the cat away. He gave it to a man going far, far away. But the cat came back the very next day. The cat came back. They thought he was a gunner, but the cat came back. He just couldn't stay away. Well, it wasn't the very next day, uh, but the cat did come back. 1048 now with Hal and CJOB joining us on the phone. Global News online journalist Sam Thompson. Uh, Sam, good morning. Good morning. I love this story. Um, You've done it online. People can check it out at CJOB.com. I tried to get Dana on, the owner of the cat. She's at work today, but tell us the story. Well, I talked to her yesterday, and uh, what she said is that uh, two years ago, um, the family's dog died, and the cat, the cat named Maggie, was the dog's best friend. So shortly after um, the dog was put down, uh, Maggie took off on an open back door and never came back. They thought that uh, after a lot of searching, a lot of you know putting out flyers and door knocking, trying to find her, they kind of gave up hope, and it had been two years since she'd been seen. And the cat came back after two years. After two years, yeah, on Thanksgiving, apparently just after their family Thanksgiving ended, um, she got a call saying that uh, the cat had been found. And um, at this point, they'd already gotten more cats and more dogs, and they've kind of you know, added new pets to the family, thinking they would never see the cat again. And there she was, uh, on the other side of town, had been discovered by someone who had been feeding her for a few weeks. Wow. Um, and this was an indoor cat, right? Like it wasn't used to being outside and disappeared and, and somehow survived for two years. Yeah, and that's the part of the story that no one's ever going to know is what actually happened to this cat over two years because yeah. she was only a year old when she went missing. And, uh, yeah, she was an indoor cat only. So somehow she developed survival skills and uh, made it through. Incredible. Well, that's a great story. We just had a heartbreaking story about all these dogs uh, that were seized, uh, 24 of them, and then four more born at yeah. the Humane Society from one of the dogs. So I'm glad we're sort of ending on a on a good note. If nothing else, Sam, this gives hope to, you know, we, you walk down a street or you drive down a street and you see the, you know, lost dog signs or lost cat signs. I mean, two years later, the cat came back, so it can happen. For sure. Yeah, you know, I often see those and think, oh, it must be, it, it, they look looking a bit yellowed or, or aged, and you think, yeah. oh, maybe this cat never made it home, but it could happen. It can happen. Sam Thompson, thanks for the great story. I appreciate it. Thanks, Al. Sam is uh, one of our global news online journalists. You can read his uh, story about the cat coming back at uh, cjob.com. Are you watching Squid Game on Netflix? I was just reading this morning, Squid Game reaches 111 million viewers, becoming Netflix's biggest debut hit. The biggest show ever, this show, nine-episode show out of uh, Korea. And I told you earlier it's called a survival drama. Well, Jackie saw the trailer and she said, I'm not watching this. So I'm watching it on my on my own. And uh, I've got a couple episodes left. And about halfway through, I kind of thought, Ugh. Boy, this better be, you know, there better be a payoff here. I, I better at the end uh, really like, there's some good moments in it. You know, it's about um, what really matters in life. There are some good messages, but it's horribly, horribly violent. Let me just uh, play a little bit 
of the trailer here so you get a sense of what we're talking about here. Netflix has 111 million. Oh, I'm sorry. That's the wrong one. Let me find <laughs> Let me find the right one. Uh, here it is. That's details on the show. Here's, here's a bit of the trailer. Every person standing here in this room is living on the brink of financial ruin. You all have debts that you can't pay off. If you do not wish to participate, then please let us know at this time. You will be playing red light, green light. The thing we did as kids on the playground? So as you heard there, when you are eliminated, oh boy, are you eliminated. And it's pretty gruesome stuff. Well, an elementary school in Winnipeg sent this note out to parents the other day. We became aware today of student conversations and play during recess that revolve around the new Netflix series Squid Game. This series is not rated as appropriate for children under 16, so we are reaching out to families who may not be connecting the comments and games their children engage in with the violence and sexual content of the series. Because the challenges in the series are named after children's games, Please see the link below, and then there was a link below. An email went out uh, from Common Sense Media that describes the show in more detail. But it's certainly not something that your kid should be watching. Just ahead of my next guest, a political scientist, uh, the Premier's popularity is plummeting. Nearly every single provincial leader is watching their approval rating drop since the summer, according to the Angus Reid Institute. Manitoba's Kelvin Gertzen, recently installed as interim premier, is currently sitting at 35% approval and is a bit of a statistical outlier because he's new to the position and he isn't on the ballot to stay in that position for much longer. Among the biggest drops are Saskatchewan's premier Scott Moe, who fell 18%, and New Brunswick's premier Blaine Higgs' approval fell 17 points to 38%. The premiers of Newfoundland, British Columbia, and Quebec are all tied for the highest approval ratings at 56%. And the man at the bottom of the ladder is Alberta's Jason Kenney, whose approval has fallen from 61% in June of 2019, down to 22% in October of this year. And only one premier saw his rating go up, Ontario Premier Doug Ford, but it was only by 1%. Adrian McMorris, Global News. Thank you, Adrian. Joining us now to talk a bit about this, political scientist and columnist, Shannon Sampert. Shannon, good morning. Good morning, Hal. How much of this do you think is COVID related? I would I would suggest almost all of this is is COVID, right? Pretty tough to be a politician during a pandemic and be popular. Well, it is pretty much COVID, except for Jason Kenney. And Jason Kenney is a bunch of things, not just COVID, but also his mishandling of uh, labor relations and uh, mishandling of a number of things in in Alberta. So right. um, that that's the economy as well, and the fact that he went missing. I mean, he literally went missing in the fourth wave. Uh, there's a lot of very angry uh, public sector workers in Alberta that want his head, uh, including university, my university colleagues 
in Alberta that are just look, turning around looking at a mess that he's created. So there's a lot of things at play in Alberta. Uh, but the rest of it is pretty much, I think, the COVID burnout and uh, the fourth wave. And uh, people are just sort of getting a little tired of the fact that this isn't over yet. And no one's really satisfied with the way it's being handled at the federal yeah. or provincial level, you know. Sure. Yeah. You know, we're only a couple of weeks away uh, from Manitoba's first woman premier. And I'm curious to uh, get your sense on, on how you think that race is going. I heard Abby Kahn on the air here with a commercial endorsing uh, Heather Stephenson, Glover Stephenson. What are you hearing about this race? We're getting close. We are getting close. I can't believe the amount of money uh, Stephenson's campaign has. Front page ad this morning uh, with uh, Obi Khan as well. Um, it, it looks like it's a powerhouse move that she's uh, she's marching right to the very, very end. But it's still interesting that it is a two-person race. Uh, and it has always been sort of a coronation for the party leader uh, uh, for the progressive conservatives. So it's it's nice that it is a race. It's nice that it's going to be a woman. And certainly, uh, you know, Calvin Gertson may have bad uh, bad uh, ratings uh, overall for the for the uh, premier uh, across the country. But uh, you, you know, this is an opportunity for them to build it back uh, from from uh, from the the uh, Pallister years, and we're seeing that. We saw that uh, in the, uh, the kind of conciliatory tone that they're taking with the Federation of Labor and the negotiations that are going on right now with the uh, uh, Manitoba, uh, University of Winnipeg, Manitoba, pardon me, uh, Faculty Association, the fact that they are uh, you know, open to negotiating again on contracts. I think this, uh, I think the Conservatives have gotten their little noses slapped. And I think the next leader is going to be a little bit more aware that you can't be like Brian Pallister was. So the next leader, the next female leader, the first female premier in Manitoba, is going to be a conciliatory leader who will listen and not be a, 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 you know, a one-man, one-man team like Brian Pallister was. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think we we voted Pallister in because we wanted strong leadership, but there's a line, right? And I think he crossed that line. Uh, I'm, I'll bet you even he would look back and say, yeah, you know, I probably crossed the line a few times. I, I think they're even setting the tone. Even Gertson, Premier uh, Calvin Gertson, interim Premier Calvin Gertson, I even think he's sort of setting the tone for a different type of government here in Manitoba in just his couple of months. I think so, absolutely. I think also the people that were in cabinet and caucus members of the Conservatives were a little tired of having to take a back seat all the time. And I think that, uh, you know, you do a lot better uh, when it comes to decision making, when you have a bunch of heads in the room making decisions rather than one head. And you learn a lot more when you have collaboration, when you have a lot of different voices speaking at a table. When you have one voice making the decisions, you know, you're bound to make mistakes. But when you have lots of voices bringing ideas and you have some really interesting members of cabinet, I mean, Audrey Gordon, uh, um, Rochelle Squires, uh, some very, very interesting voices, of course, you know, um, uh, uh, Cameron Friesen, Calvin Gerson, all of these interesting uh, people that have mm. good points of view. When you bring them to the table and allow them to have a voice, which Brian Pallister didn't allow them to do, then you get different perspectives and really good policy as a result. Mm-hmm. And how is uh, how's Justin Trudeau doing uh, with his minority government so far? You've been watching that closely, I know. 
Yeah, that's an interesting one. What we're basically doing is in a holding pattern right now. I think that we're going to have some new leaders uh, the next time we go to the polls um, and just exactly who those new leaders are going to be. Definitely a new Green leader. Uh, I think we're going to have a new NDP leader and uh, for sure we're going to have a new progressive, uh, a new Tory leader. So we're just waiting to see uh, how these new leadership uh, challenges work their way out. In the meantime, uh, it's uh, business ahead for the uh, for the liberal minority government. Mm-hmm. Shannon Samper, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. You have a great one. Always great talking to Shannon Samper, political scientist and columnist. A few minutes now with the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union in Winnipeg, Romeo Ignacio. Romeo, good morning. Good morning, Hal. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Where are we at with uh, transit drivers getting vaccinated? Well, um, so far we are still um, uh, around 80% vaccination rate, um, and uh, we're still dealing with some members that have uh, vaccine hesitancy. Um, We are discussing with the city, uh, with transit officials in the city, how we could um, accommodate uh, some of our members uh, for medical reasons, medical exemptions, uh, some for uh, religious reasons. Uh, but yeah, we're still in talks. Uh, the deadline is, uh, you know, coming. But um, we're trying to figure out how we could uh, protect our, the public, uh, you know, serve the public better. Because we know that uh, this is going to be a problem for the services if we lose, um, you know, a few of our members. Actually, we're looking at uh, around maybe up to 100, 150 of our operators that may not be able to drive. Yeah, and how do you handle that, right? You lose 100 drivers uh, because they don't want to get vaccinated, and the city says, well, they're not driving a bus, and and you're already struggling to cover all the routes, right? Yeah, that is correct. Uh, Right now, um, you know, we are dealing with a lot of turnovers, a lot of uh, early retirements. Um, you know, just because of COVID, uh, people are retiring sooner than uh, they want to, I guess, or they plan to. Um, but uh, even the the work itself, like for new operators, uh, they didn't expect that. Um, well, driving is hard enough, uh, and COVID is making real, uh, you know, a very big challenge for a lot of our new operators. So, um, you know, you combine all of that with uh, people that are not getting vaccinated and won't be able to drive because they don't have the proof of vaccination. Uh, yeah, that's going to be a very problematic um, for it'll be problematic for our service. And the city has said that exemptions will be made on a case-by-case basis. Um, will a, a person, a driver, be able to drive not be vaccinated and drive and be tested? Or has the city given you any guidance on that at all? Or is this all still being decided? Yeah, that is actually what's, uh, what we're uh, talking to the city about because um, they have provided us with a uh, direction on what's going to happen. But the, uh, as far as the testing is concerned, there's nothing concrete yet. There's, they, they are working on a testing protocol. Um, I think um, we can all agree that we, we're not going to reach a 100% vaccination rate for, you know, for our members or even uh, in, in general, for the general population. So we have to 
continue to find ways to make sure that we are protecting everyone. Um, I think there are other ways as well. Uh, we're looking at having um, on-site testing or uh, we go, uh, self, or sorry, uh, currently we have self-assessment right now, but uh, we're asking the city to have um, on-site um, uh, checking uh, for, uh, for, no, for, for everyone, not just for the unvaccinated people, because, you know, just like when you go to um, the, the dental clinic or whatever, you you know, besides the proof of vaccination, they also check you for temperature and ask you a, a bunch of questions. So, you know, that hasn't changed, and I we would like the city actually to implement that not as an honor system, but um, actually uh, on site. And Romeo, I'm ready to time, so a quick answer, but I just want to clarify this. So it is possible that after the deadline, there might be a transit driver driving a bus who is not vaccinated, but that person, that driver, will be tested, correct? It is possible, yes. All right. Appreciate it. Romeo, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for your time, Hal. Bye-bye. Thank you. Romeo Ignacio, president of the Amalgamated Transit Union here in the city of Winnipeg. Carolyn Klassen now from Conexus Counseling, conexuscounseling.ca. Carolyn, good morning. Good morning. How, how are you? Excellent. We're uh, talking a bit today about Squid Game, this show on Netflix. This is the biggest show ever for Netflix, 111 million viewers. I'm one of them. I'm watching it. Jackie did not want to watch it. She said, I'm not watching it. It's too violent. It is violent. About halfway through, I thought, oh. There better be a payoff here for me because it is very violent. And then this note went out to at least one school this week. An email went out to parents saying, hey, just to let you know, if your kid's talking about Squid Game, it's a very violent Netflix show that they should probably not be watching. Um, And I've had some really good uh, feedback by text and email from parents on how they handle uh, what their kids watch, control and, and regulate what their kids watch. Any advice on this, Carolyn? Well, I think marine life is often something that cartoonists use to uh, have fun with kids. And so whole, the whole idea of squid um, seems kind of fun and innocent because of, you know, the kinds of fish and things that children are exposed to. But I think we need to remember that children don't always know the difference between fact and fiction. And when something looks as realistic as squid games is, that, that sort of thing can haunt a kid. I don't know if you remember being in elementary school, but there were times when I would take a flying leap from the doorway of my bedroom onto the bed. So the monsters underneath the bed, <laughs> my bed, which I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure if they were there or not, but I yeah. didn't want them to grab my ankles, right? right. Um, and sometimes grown-ups are still pretending that the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus is real. And so how are they supposed to know what's real and what isn't real as they're still just learning from their perspective as children? And so I think we have to be really aware of what we expose them to as they are not yet developmentally ready to know what fiction is and what fiction can look like. Mm -hmm. And listen, every kid is different. And, you know, parents know their kids well. Moms and dads know their kid, right? And you you start getting to, you know, 10, 11, 12. I don't know what the age is. It's different uh, for every kid. And then mom and dad say, yeah, you know what? You can watch this because they have a better understanding of exactly what it is they're watching. Yeah. And so you really need to know your kid. 
Um, but I think it's really important to be really cautious about some of the horror movie stuff because you can't unsee some of that stuff and it can impact children and um, they then have knowledge and images of things which perhaps children of that age were never really meant to have. And so I think people have to know their children and to play things on the cautious side. A couple of generations ago, kids would never have been exposed to this stuff. Um, they were exposed to different things in the real world, but they weren't exposed to this sort of stuff. This is relatively new. We're covering new ground that kids have a chance to see something this violent sort of at any point during the day. This sort of stuff used to be only be shown um, late at night, even just a generation ago on television when children weren't watching television. Mm-hmm. Um, you wanted to uh, also sort of on a related subject here, you wanted to talk about what a good scare can teach us. Talk about this. Well, I think sometimes people think some of those, you know, like Boo at the Zoo and some of those yeah. horrifying experiences. Or horm- what, what purpose is there? Is there any value? And what I was doing is I was reading some research on psychology today that was talking about how when people entered one of those immersive horror, when people exited one of those immersive horror experiences as they came out, the researchers are saying, so did you learn anything about yourself? And a surprising number of people said, Actually, I learned a little that I could handle more than I thought I could. I learned that I could be scared and still make decisions. And so th- what, the, what the researchers were wondering is, as people are exposing themselves to these um, horror experiences and get a chance to feel their anxiety and find out that it doesn't kill them, they don't die, they do recover, whether that will then prepare them for that difficult conversation with the boss or the first day of university or whatever anxiety-producing conversation they might be having in their lives because they've learned to tolerate a certain amount of anxiety and still function. And so perhaps there's a place for learning in some of these experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw this and I thought, man, when's the last time I sat down and actually wrote a letter or even a note on a piece of paper? And it's been more than five years for me. But this new poll says that most of us have not written a letter on paper in at least five years. And you know what? When I read that headline, I thought, this is kind of sad, right? We've sort of lost. We all send emails and text messages. We communicate, but it's not the same, is it, Carolyn? It isn't. And, you know, I think many of us have watched, you know, movies or television shows from the old days where people are opening up old letters from 30 or 40 years ago and reading them with nostalgia. And you, you realize how beautiful that is when people put their thoughts down with a pen on paper. They write differently than when they're tapping quickly at a keyboard. And I think there's a beauty to pen and paper. And, you know, mostly in the mail, most of us get pretty much bills and speeding tickets in the mail these days. And so if there's a thank you note or a note of appreciation, um, just a, a caring note in the mail for somebody that's handwritten from handwriting that they might recognize from a loved one, I think that's quite beautiful. And I know that in our house, we've had to teach our adolescent what it looks like to address an envelope because he has never mailed anything in his life. He hasn't needed to. And I think we have to figure out how to hold some of that beauty of getting something handwritten because to see something with ink and paper has a, just evokes a different feeling than to seeing it on the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Knickers and Kickers Day today. We want people to help out Silo Mission with underwear and socks. And I'll just read a quick text message here 
from Sheila put a smile on my face. Hal, I just ordered shampoo, toothpaste, and undies on Amazon for Siloam. Feels so good to help out. It really does feel good to help out. Sheila's absolutely right, Carolyn, and we help out a lot here in Winnipeg and Manitoba. What is it, do you think, about our personality? Why is it so cool? Why does it feel so good to help? I think it's deeper than personality. I think it comes down to character. And Manitobans have a huge value in who they are to say, I'm going to help out uh, the people around me in my community, people that are less fortunate. I recognize that, you know, if my life had been different, I might have been one of those people. And so I'm going to have compassion and I'm going to reach out and make a difference in their lives. And the truth is that when we make other people's lives better, we get a good feeling inside of us. It makes our lives better. But as those that are struggling in our community have a hand up, that we all do better as a community because when people are struggling, it's hard for them. And Mm -hmm. we all need to figure out how to work together in order for the common good. We are better people when we help each other. And by the way, congratulations, uh, uh, your son, some big news, you're, you're with him. Tell us about it. Yes, I'm out west with my son. He is graduating from police school. He spent the last six months getting up at four and five in the morning to work incredibly hard and learn incredibly much in order to be able to um, respond to 911 calls and all, that, all the rest of what's involved in policing. This has been a childhood dream. He came to me when he was in grade four or so and said, Mom, when I grow up, I'm going to help people. And he's mm-hmm. worked relentlessly towards the school. And I'm really excited for what he has done. Um, and it's funny how I look at police officers a little bit differently now, that every police officer is the son or daughter of people who worry about them and care about them and um, know their hearts. And it just has me feel a little warmer to um, the men and women in blue. Well, congratulations to him and and to you. And uh, I think we've all, if we didn't know it before the pandemic, we know it now. Frontliners, all of them are really special people. And Carolyn, it does not surprise me at all that you have a very special son. Thanks a lot for doing this. Appreciate it. Take care. Carolyn Klassen from Connexus Counseling, connexuscounseling.ca. 